your side I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your heart is before me First Peter chapter two.
I'll give you a heads up, this is either going to be really long or really short, and I'm going to cut it into two sermons and continue it next week, just see how I feel somewhere in there uh, in about 30 minutes. But uh, I grew up with two older brothers, Mike and David are their names, and uh, we were affectionately known as the Givens Kids, and the Givens Kids had a bit of a reputation. It was that we were hard workers, wasn't what you were about to think, huh? We were kind of known as being hard-working uh, a group of kids. If you wanted someone to work really hard, if you wanted someone to get the job done, if you wanted someone to work without too much complaining, then you had the Givens kids come and do work at your house. In fact, every year, our youth would have a big youth auction to raise money for camps and whatnot, and uh, the Givens kids always brought the most, if I remember right, we always brought the most money in because it would, whenever we got up there, it started a bidding war. Because they knew they were getting their money's worth when they got the Givens kids. Now, I'm not telling you all this to brag, or maybe just a little bit. I'm telling you that so you know this was our M.O. This was what we were known for. It was our identity. That's what we were known for. And I'm also telling you that to raise the question, where did we get this identity? How did this come into being? Well, here, frankly, we got it at home to brag a little bit on my mom and dad, and I'm not doing this just because they're here, or maybe just a little bit I am, but they were hard workers. They would work all day, and they would come home, and they would work after work. When Saturday had come around, they wouldn't turn on the boob tube and watch TV, but we would work hard at the house, and we'd go out to our, our grandfather's place and work on his, uh, his acreage out in North Texas, or we would go to the church's camp property, and we would work all day out there. We were just hard-working people. In fact, you know, some people have that motto, uh, all work and no play is a, makes for a dull day. Our kind of unspoken motto was all work and no play. Hey, boy, get back to work and stop making up silly rhymes. No, I'm just kidding, but we had our fun too. But that's just kind of where it came from. And here's what I'm trying to say. The attitude and personal character of the parents rubbed off on those whom they had produced. What I'm saying is, is that our, our identity was really a reflection of what we had seen and experienced from being in their presence. Now, make no mistake about it, we had a choice. We could have easily have said, I'm not having any of that. We could have rebelled. We could have said, I'm, you know what, I'm, we're not doing that. But instead, we chose to submit. And in submitting, we kept ourselves in their presence. And when kids submit to the presence of their parents, they can't help but to become more and more like their parents. Now that might be good news for some of you. That might be scary for some of others, some of us others. Well, two weeks ago I left off with verse three. If we have indeed tasted what the Lord that the Lord is gracious, which is another way of saying if we are saved, then if we've experienced this gracious mercy of Jesus Christ, then we need to feed on God's word. Why is this so important? Because our identity and our spiritual journey does not stop at salvation. Our identity does not stop at saying, well, I've tasted the graciousness of God and now I'm done and I can go on with life. No, instead what the Bible teaches is that our journey and our growth continues on after that moment. And this is kind of what Peter is uh, starting with here in verse 4, is growth in finding our identity. And it's by coming into his presence that we become a reflection of Jesus Christ in our identity. This morning our scripture gives us some thoughts about having our identity 
being like the likeness of God in Jesus Christ. So let's read our scripture, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 4 through 10. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will, be, will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pause a moment for prayer, please. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for new identity, that we are a new creation in you, and that we are, by coming into your presence, being made to be more and more like you. Lord, let us submit to, not, uh, submit to that and not rebel against that. Lord, let us be changed from the inside out. Let us not walk in, walk out of this place the same way that we walked out, uh, walked in. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. There's three thoughts I want to give you this morning about our identity in Christ, and this may be a part one and part two sermon, like I already said, because I, I don't want to rush through this too much. But the first one is this. We are, in finding our identity, we are to be coming to the living stone. We are to be coming to the living stone. That's what... Peter says there in verse 4, that word coming uh, carries with it this idea of a continual action, a, a nonstop uh, status, if you will. Uh, it's, it's like we never really leave the presence of Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's not a one-time action. This is where we formulate this idea that our relationship with God does not end with salvation. Our, our being justified by Jesus Christ through faith is a one-time response to his mercy. Amen. But, and we do believe and we espouse once saved, always saved, that you don't have to keep praying and receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. What Peter is clearly telling us, though, from verse 3 to verse 4, is that once we've tasted that graciousness of Jesus Christ, that one-time action, then you need to continue to submit yourself to Christ. Keep coming to him because he is the living stone. The living stone. Why a living stone? You know, it's really interesting, every time the Bible talks about rocks and gives it like personification, life-like features, it's always having to do with God. It's always having to do with God. If the people do not worship, the rocks will cry out. In the book of Habakkuk, the stones of the walls will cry out for him. In the book of Isaiah, the mountains and hills will clap for him. Living stones are living because of God. He brings everything to life, even things that are dead. Living stones communicate life and strength. 
And he is the stone and the rock of life. The type of stone he is to us depends on whether we have put our faith in him as Savior and Lord. And this is what Peter is communicating in this verse, verse 4. But then verse 4 is linked to verses 6 through 8. And that's where he's talking about how do you view this stone, this living stone. In verse 4 he says that there are some that will reject it indeed. And that word indeed is not just put there for filler. It's an emphasis. It's people who strongly reject Jesus. In other words, they know who he is. As we've talked through the Gospel of John and talked about the Pharisees, we've talked about how they knew who he was, but they willfully rejected him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. This rejecting indeed is talking about rejecting any type of faith, putting any kind of faith as in Jesus as Savior or Lord. And again, Peter em emphasizes this in verses 6, 7, and 8. And there's this connection not only to here, but to the Old Testament scriptures of Psalm 118, Isaiah chapter 8, and Isaiah chapter 20, uh, 28. And if this sounds familiar, verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Verse 7, the stone which the builders rejected. And verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus Christ himself quotes this in the Gospels. Paul the Apostle also quotes this in his books. And it's not that Peter is being a copycat. This doesn't take away from the inspiration of God uh, in, in the writing of this letter. In fact, what, what is happening here is there's a lot of, that believe that when Jesus first spoke this Old Testament prophecy in his teachings, that the New Testament first century church then created a hymn out of that. I have no problem with that idea at all. I, you know, we're taught in the book of Acts that they were praising God with him. And they based their hymns on the Old Testament. Just a side note, if we're not singing songs based on Scripture, we don't need to be singing them, all right? But anyway, that's totally, that's a whole other sermon. This living stone, Jesus Christ, will be rejected by men in verse 4. And in verses 7 and 8, he is the stone which the builders rejected. Uh, basically, Peter is pointing back towards Jerusalem. It's a reminder of their willful rejection of Jesus that led to his crucifixion. And that rejection led to his death on the cross. And so the question is, what kind of stone is he to you? Is he a stone that you've rejected or is he a stone that you have accepted? Because what you do with this stone is what identifies you. It's what causes you to be identified. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've rejected him as Lord and Savior, here's what the scripture says. He is now a stone of stumbling. But if you believe on him, then your identity is one who will by no means be put to shame. And not only is this stone precious to God, but to you who believe, he is also precious. This living stone, in other words, is either a stumbling block or he is a cornerstone and a precious cornerstone at that, depending on what you believe about Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed talking about this being a rock of offense, have you ever noticed that when people use the Lord's name in vain, it's always the name of Jesus? It's always the name of God, and they are talking about God the Father? You know, when someone stubs their toe, nobody, nobody shouts out with exclamation, Dalai Lama, right? When you get in an auto wreck, nobody ever says, Buddha, dang it. They always curse with the name of Jesus, and I think this has something to do with their subconscious being offended by that name, offended by the name of Jesus Christ. How can Jesus be a rock 
of offense. Well, when people talk about Jesus, they have no problem with his good works, with his miracles, with his feeding of the 5,000, with all the wonderful things that he did. When they start talking about his teachings, they don't have a problem with his teachings as long as you're talking about love your enemies. Judge not lest you be judged. Forgive so that you can be forgiven. Be a light in the world. We don't have a problem with those teachings, and, and frankly, we shouldn't. Those are good teachings that we should find important and make a bedrock of our life. But when you start getting to some of these teachings, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Ooh, I don't like that. He's saying that he's the only way of salvation. Or how about this? At the end of time, this is Jesus, one of Jesus' teachings, at the end of time, the angels will separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, that is the evil, into the fiery furnace. He's talking about hell. Ooh, we don't, ugh, can we just go back to that love your enemies? Can we back to that judge not lest you be judged? By the way, that is so taken out of context, that judge not lest you be judged. We take that and apply it to things that, anyway, that's a whole other sermon too. People don't like Jesus when we talk about Jesus the prophet, Jesus the preacher, who told the truth and told it the way it is. You know, there's a number of interactions he had with people that after he healed them or after he taught them, he ended the, the interaction with this, go and sin no more. Because Jesus realized what the problem was. When he said, I didn't come to help the, the, the well, I came to heal the sick, he wasn't talking about people who, uh, you know, let's just sugarcoat their sin. He was here to teach them that sin is a problem. You need to reject that sin and repent from that sin and turn from that sin. But if you don't like that, then all of a sudden the name of Jesus becomes an offense to you. The name of Jesus is even more so of an offense to those who have rejected him as the only Lord and Savior. It's a reminder to them that they know the right response to his offer of life through faith and that they have rejected that response. The scriptures that we read refer to it as disobedient, verse 7. And that word disobedient could also be translated disbelieve. That he is a stone of offense and a stumbling stone for those who have disbelieved him. The greatest act of disobedience that anyone can ever commit is the disobedience of not believing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's, that is the greatest and only unforgivable sin. Peter says in verse 4 that this living stone was precious to God and connected to us. In verse 7 he states, to those who believe he is precious, submitting to Jesus, accepting him as the living stone of salvation, has led me personally to a place where I say he is the most precious thing in my life. I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my family. Church, I love you. You are precious to me. But there is no one more precious to me than Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of my life. Even when I fail, and I fail a lot, he is still the precious cornerstone of my life. And you see, there is nothing you can do, by the way, to avoid Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of creation. He is the God of the universe. And everyone will encounter him and everyone must make a decision on him. There is no getting around him. And that's why he is either a stumbling stone because as you are walking on in life, you will be, you will be uh, confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ and you must make a decision. And the decision comes down to this. I'm either going to stumble trying to get around him 
or I'm going to fall flat on him and lay my life down on him as the cornerstone of my life and build him as the foundation of my life. I don't know a lot about buildings, but I know this. The foundation is the most important part of the building. If you don't have a good foundation, you will spend a lot of money fixing all kinds of issues with your house. Cracks in the walls, cracks in your plumbing. It would be better to forego all of the construction of your house until you are sure that you have a sure foundation. And the surest foundation that we can build our life upon is Jesus Christ. And if you don't build it upon Him, then you're going to have cracks in your life. You're going to have all kinds of problems in your life. And I'm not talking about Jesus being the best way to live life. I'm talking about him saving you and giving you eternal life, which is the best thing, or rejecting him and just stumbling him over him for the rest of your, your life. And we are to keep coming to this living stone because we want his life in place of ours. We want his words in our life. We want Him and realize that when everything else is falling to pieces, we have this immovable, unshakable rock of foundation that we can throw our lives upon and say, Lord, please build me up. And in making Him the foundation of our life, we remain in this perpetual action of coming to Him. And what will happen is that if you submit to Him, His nature, His attributes, His character will rub off on you. His identity will become your identity. And in coming to the living stone, you yourself will become living stones. That's what Peter says. Coming to, the, to him as to a living stone, verse 5, you also as living stones. As you submit to the, yourself to this living stone, this, this foundational rock, you yourself will become a living stone. Your identity will be wrapped up in his identity. Like my brothers and I becoming the hard-working Givens kids, you will become the holy and obedient living stone of the living stone. So number two is this. If you will be coming to the living stone, you will be coming living stones. This word living infuses the idea and expectation of growth. How can I say this? Because dead things don't grow, right? Dead things don't grow. I know zombie movies are real popular right now. We like to watch these things where they're going around saying brains or whatever, I don't, you know. But that isn't real. Dead things don't walk around. Dead things don't grow. Only living things grow. And on the hills of the resurrection, it is right that we emphasize that he is the living stone. Though he was buried in a stone tomb, though it was covered up with a large stone, all those things could not contain the living stone who conquered death, and coming to Jesus, the living stone, we are being built up into living stones. Verse 5, that word built up has as its root the Greek word oikos, which is the Greek word for house. You are being made into a house when you keep coming to Jesus, the living stone, that are being made into this living stone. And when you consider the one who is saying this, the Apostle Peter, you begin to think about and see the great transformation in Peter's life. Remember, this is the guy that was huddled around the fire with some little girls. And they asked him, don't you know Jesus? He says, no. And by the third time, he cursed at those little girls, saying, I don't even know the man whom you speak of. And then ran off like a little girl, right? He was 
fearful and afraid. And yet 50 days later, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, I encourage you to open it, not now, but write that down and go read this sermon that he preaches in Acts chapter 2, thinking about this little, this, little, uh, this little disciple that goes running off in the night, running away from some little girls around a campfire, 50 days later stands up amongst a group of thousands of Jews in the middle of Jerusalem and preaches this awesome sermon which contains this phrase, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was important for death to keep its hold on him. This is the same disciple that ran away in the night 50 days later. He has been transformed into a living rock. And that is the type of transformation that we can have if we will keep coming to the living stone, Jesus Christ. He makes weak men into strong rocks for the faith of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to read through that sermon and see all that he says. Does this mean that we're going to need to preach a sermon like Peter and see 3,000 people come to faith at once? Not necessarily. Although I do believe the next Billy Graham could be one of these little kiddos sitting here this morning. Absolutely. But when our lives are submitted to Jesus, we will be changed. Not all in the same way, but Peter gives us a description of what this transformed life looks like. He uses these phrases to describe this transformed life. He says that we will be built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up, sacrificial, uh, offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me move through this real quick. As a spiritual house, he puts us together, builds us up. There is organization and structure in a house. You know what is interesting is that rocks can be a pile, but when organized and structured correctly, they can be constructed into buildings, into bridges, into roads. And right here in verse 5, a house. Be building you up into a house. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be just a pile of rocks. I want the Lord to build me up into something. I don't want to be just dumped out and be of no use. To be a house means that I am of use. To be a house means that I have purpose. Specifically, a house serves the purpose of being an abode. And this just think, makes me think of John chapter 15. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. I want to be a house, a spiritual house that God dwells in and does much with. And then he goes on and says, as a holy priesthood. So as a house, he puts us together. As a holy priesthood, he puts us in place. The priesthood was a position in Israel, appointed and ordained by God through the lineage of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And so the priesthood dates back thousands of years. But after Jesus comes, he essentially says uh, in this, hey guys, with me coming, you're all, all priests now. There's not just a special select few. If you believe in me, if you are born again, you are of this priesthood lineage. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean we can go around and interpret the Bible however we want? Absolutely not. The priests didn't interpret the Bible. They read the Bible. They preached the Bible. They worshiped God. They led others in worshiping God. In fact, if you want to serve, uh, if you want to sum up the, 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 the people of the priesthood, the priests up in one word, it's the word service. The priests were men of service. 
above all else. And so when we read this, that he makes us into a holy priesthood, and a little later he's going to say that we're a royal priesthood, we need to have in the back of our minds understanding that what he has done is put us into a place of service, serving God, serving others, serving God and serving others. This is not only a motto of being priests, this should be our motto for being a follower of Jesus Christ, serving God and serving others with our very life. And then finally, he says, offering up spiritual sacrifice. So he puts us together, he puts us in place, and then he puts us to work. I think a lot of us struggle with this idea of having work to do. We'd much rather just get saved and sit on our spiritual blessings and, and, and wait for heaven, right? You've ever heard that phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you, you are of no earthly good? I, I think that's a paradox. If all you're doing is sitting around waiting on heaven, there's nothing heavenly about that. Heaven is all about service. Heaven is all about worshiping God through our service. And so offering up spiritual sacrifices is the most heavenly thing we can do. Working, putting ourselves, our God putting us to work is the most heavenly thing we can do. And this fits right into our purpose. We were not left here on earth just to take up space. And, and what fits into this nomer, this, this word, spiritual service, really is anything that we do for the glory of God. Going to work is an act of spiritual sacrifice. Loving your family is an act of spiritual sacrifice. Serving in the church can be an act of spiritual sacrifice. Anything we do for the glory of God is an act of spiritual sacrifice. We may think it's something menial to stack chairs. We may think it's something menial to clean the cabinets. We may think it's something menial to help out our neighbor. But that, it, that done to the glory of God is an act of spiritual service. And so the living rock puts us to work, offering up spiritual sacrifices which are only made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not that our works are all that great. They might be pathetic in the sight of the world, but to God they are acceptable only because of our relationship to Him through Jesus Christ. It kind of reminds me of when I had really, really young kids. They're older now. But maybe if you remember when your kids were really young and they would bring you this piece of paper with scribbling all over it. And you would hang it up on the fridge and you would go on and on about this beautiful piece of art. Nobody else would care anything about it, but because of who did it for you, that's why it matters. My spiritual sacrifice, my work for God may look meaningless to everyone else, but because I'm a child of God, oh, he hangs it on his heavenly fridge. <laughs> he loves us so much that he takes our artwork and proclaims it. Well done. But in this point of becoming a living stone is this underlying emphasis of being a part of a collaborative group. You see, we're not just to be coming to the living stone and becoming living stones all by ourselves. No, this is not just about the life of Brian Givens in Coleman Texas. You see, he is doing a work in us collectively. There is really an underlying emphasis here on this collective group of believers, believers, the church, us. The other day, I had to take an alternate route home from Lufkin. 
there was a down power line from one of the back roads that I usually take out of Lufkin. And uh, they had shut down the road. And so I was trying to find a faster route back to Comanillo. I had some chicken. I didn't want it to go bad. And so I started looking on my GPS. And I found this county road that connected me back over to Highway 69. And it started off kind of paved. And then it turned into kind of rock. And then it kind of turned into sand. And it was kind of muddy still from the rain. And I started praying, oh, Lord, please, please let this stay rocky. You see, here's the thing. If there had only been one rock on that road, it would have been of no use. It was the collection of rocks together that kept my automobile going forward. A singular stone does no good. We need a group of living stones together. We need the church. We need to see the importance of the church. And you need to understand that this entire section of Scripture, Peter has been using actually plural verbs and plural uh, articles. When he says, for instance, in verse 9, oh, I lost my place. In verse 9, but you, that's actually plural. It's not just you, it's you all. Which we can actually just go ahead and translate y'all. Peter was Texan, y'all. He says, y'all are a chosen generation. Remember that Peter is addressing the scattered believers. Peter is addressing the believers that had been running for their lives because of the persecution being so great. He didn't send this to a building. The church wasn't identified by a building. They didn't have a building. The church was identified by their identity in Jesus Christ. Here are the words that Peter uses, just looking at verses 9 and 10. Just read along with me. He says, but you all are a chosen generation. He doesn't say chosen ancestor or chosen person of a, of a generation. Going on, he says, a royal priesthood. He doesn't say a royal priest. He says, a holy nation, not a holy citizen. His own special people, not a special person. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, not a person, but are now the people, not a person, of God. This is all plural. Peter is addressing the church. He is addressing a group of living stones. Part of the emphasis of Jesus' ministry was to call out a new covenant people, no longer on the basis of law and a system of slaughtered sacrifices, but one of faith in the grace supplied through the one-time lamb who was sacrificed for all the sins of the world. Now, this is not to say that Jesus did not come to save you, the individual. I don't want anyone leave, leaving here thinking that Jesus only cares about the church, that Jesus, if you're a part of the church, you're automatically saved. I'm not saying that whatsoever. You must make an individual choice to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But surely, I mean, you are a reasonable group of people. You look pretty reasonable anyway. Surely you can think in terms of God's care for us as individuals and at the same time realize that he emphasizes over and over the church. When he says to Peter, the gates of hell shall not prevail, he doesn't say against you, Peter. He says against the church. His emphasis, his concern is the body of Christ, the people that would come to him and his new people that would come to him because of the church. This is so important because we live in a day where the church, where God's people are being marginalized more and more every day. We're being pushed to the outer limits of, of concern. We're being 
seeing more and more persecution. In fact, I, I read, I've read several times that there's more persecution, more uh, uh, people being put to death for the name of Christ than ever before in history. But see, we're not just being marginalized by unbelievers. We're being marginalized by people who, do, who say they proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We're, we're, we're being, I mean, church attendance is seen as, as an optional thing nowadays. I mean, it is optional. It's like your salvation depends upon it. But it's an, it's an afterthought. If I don't have anything else going on, then maybe I'll attend. Ministry and evangelism. It's not the work of the church now. It's now the work of the hired employees. And instead of bully, uh, having a bully pulpit, the pulpit is being bullied. You hear more and more every day of people being told what they can and cannot preach. Our identity as living stones is tied up in Jesus Christ, but it is also tied up in the church because we together are a holy, royal priesthood. We together are a people of God. And I'm not calling for some great return to the church of yesteryear. But here's my prayer. Here's kind of my, my hope. Is that we would once again see the church for what it is. A collective group of living stones. Growing in their personal relationship with Jesus Christ together. You see, it's by being together that we build each other up in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Cooperating together as a spiritual house of spiritual sacrificial service in such a way that we are a witness to the lost world. And I think the way this has to happen is that we have to see the great common bond, the great common identity that we have. What is that identity? Look back at verse 10 with me. I'm almost done. He says that we are now the people of God who have obtained mercy. Who had, I'm sorry, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Our greatest identifier is not that we are white people or that we are Comanillians or that we're in this age group or that age group. Our greatest identifier is that we're a bunch of beggars who found the bread of Jesus Christ and have obtained mercy through him. And so that when we see one another, we don't see color, we don't see uh, socioeconomic status, we don't see any of these identifiers that the world identifies us with, but instead we see one another as the people of God who have obtained mercy. And that's a big important thing, talking about identity and that being our identity, because, you know, one of the things I struggle with is I still see myself as that sinner that Jesus has already forgiven. I still see myself as that sinner that did those things that Jesus has forgiven me of. And so instead of identifying myself as a person who has obtained mercy, I identify myself as someone who is still a horrible, horrible sinner. And what's bad is, if you're like me, then I go and I project that on other people. Well, if I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And we are sinners. I mean, let's not make light of that. But our identity, first and foremost, through Jesus Christ, is that we have obtained the mercy of God. Because of that, we have this great identifying mutual bond that we can come together on. Yeah, you did wrong, man, but praise God for the mercy that you have obtained through Jesus Christ. Oh, you're struggling. I understand you're struggling, brother, but I want to tell you, you and I, we've both obtained the same mercy of Jesus Christ. And let's come together and praise God for that obtained mercy through Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've experienced this mercy. 
Perhaps the reason you've not felt or experienced this common bond, this identifying bond within the confines of the church is because you've never obtained the mercy of God. You're still trying, you're just still stumbling over Jesus Christ. You're still stumbling over the stone that has been put in your way and you're trying to avoid him. I can save myself or church attendance saves me or my grandfather was a preacher or this or that. Instead of just saying, I need to lay myself out on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and make him the foundation of my life. We're going to have a time of invitation this morning. Time for you to respond and we want to just invite you to respond how the Spirit may be leading you. And if you've never found and obtained this mercy through Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to do that. Would you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the great change in identity we can have to be transformed from being a great sinner to being a royal priest who's obtained your mercy and is now of use with your people, for your people, and for you. But Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's struggling with that idea, who has never obtained the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, then we pray that during this invitation, this time of music and responding, that Lord, they would come to you in faith and declare you as Savior and Lord of their life. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, your spirit would be heard loud and clear this morning. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus.